Hello, everyone. I'm Joe Zeidel, and you're listening to the Blackstone Podcast. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest, someone I've known and worked with for many years, Rich Bernstein. Rich is the Chief Executive Officer and Chief Investment Officer of Richard Bernstein Advisors, an independent investment advisor he founded in 2009. Before founding RBA, Rich was the Chief Investment Strategist of Bank of America Merrill Lynch Global Research. As many of you know, I worked with Rich both at Merrill Lynch and RBA before I joined Blackstone last year. Rich has over 35 years experience on Wall Street, successfully guiding clients through market cycles as a strategist, and for the last decade as an allocator of client capital. And I'm very glad to have him here with me in the studio today. Thanks, Rich. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, very good to see you. One of the things, uh, Rich, I I would share with you is I hired an analyst last year to join me, uh, Taylor Becker. And when I hired him, the first thing I did was gave him my copy of Style Investing. I said, go out and read it. And uh, so just want to let you know that your legacy of size and style investing, profits and interest rates uh, just continues to grow. So uh, so you have uh, fans of your your books uh, over here. That's great. Thank you. Well, great. Well, let's get started, Rich. There's a lot of topics that I want to cover just over the next few minutes, including you know where we are in the cycle, recession risk, monetary policy, profit cycle, and investing implications. So I think a, a lot of interesting things to cover, and I'm interested in making it just a really a, a casual conversation. So I thought I'd start with this. We've had a few better data points out of China and the U.S., but market participants remain really focused on slowing growth and the possibility of recession. As most of my readers probably know, I disagree with this narrative. I think the economic expansion is going to continue at least for another few years, and we won't see a recession anytime before 2021 at the earliest. Rich, do you agree with that? Or, or said another way, where do you think we are in the cycle today? Well, Joe, I would say that we're somewhere in the late cycle environment. I agree with you that the the abyss is not moments away. And I think, you know, a lot of people have kind of drawn out what's been going on and, and speaking hyperbole, make it sound like the, the recession's coming tomorrow. That That's not happening. The data is way too strong to say that a recession's on the horizon right now. However, in a late cycle environment, what tends to happen is that investors get more and more bullish, oddly enough. They don't get bullish in the early cycle. And so I think that's starting to happen. And I think the prudent thing in that kind of an environment is to start becoming more conservative. Mm-hmm. And what would you say, you know, maybe a couple pieces of evidence to say that investors are becoming more bullish? Uh, because one of the things I was looking at recently was just the valuation of cyclicals versus defensives. And mm-hmm. even though we've had a pretty strong snap back to the beginning of the year, I think year-to-date performance is in like the, the 99th percentile of of any start to the year, it seems like the cyclical PEs are still below their September peak, whereas mm-hmm. defensive PEs seems like they've actually moved above that September mm-hmm. peak. So it looks like the Absolutely. money that's in the market seems to be more defensive, but you're seeing, what are you seeing? So there's a couple of things. First, I would say from just a sentiment point of view, then we'll talk valuation. From a sentiment point of view, what you're finding is in a number of surveys that we look at, that people are getting incrementally bullish. They're not euphoric, but they are getting more bullish through time. And I think we're seeing that in the data, slowly but surely. I think one has to remember that you tend to buy cyclicals when the PEs are high, not when the PEs are low. Mm-hmm. And that's because they're, especially the deeper the cyclical, the more you want to think that way. Later in the cycle, especially very late cycle, what you'll find is they sell at very low multiples because they're being priced on peak earnings. Mm-hmm. And we're not quite at peak earnings. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. I think we'll come back to earnings in a couple minutes, but mm-hmm. there are a couple of things I want to talk about just you know, more broadly on the economy before we get to that. And that is, you know, much has been made about the fact that a part of the yield curve had recently inverted. 
How much do you read into that? Well, first of all, it inverted for like a day <laughs> or maybe two days. But, but at, when, I, when I was at Mural, one of the rules was that if a curve inverted, it had to, it had to stay inverted for a month. Mm-hmm. And I think as many people have pointed out, the time lags involved between when a yield curve inverts and when the actual bear market or recession occurs it can differ greatly mm-hmm. depending on the cycle. Our take is that it's just not a good sign. It's hard to get incrementally bullish when you have a very flat or inverted yield curve. Sure. And I think it's a good point because when it did invert, you know, of course, you had this uh, you know, incredible focus on the first inversion since 2007 <laughs> or 2008. Right. But when you look at the fine print on the 10-year to three-month, you realize a couple things. Number one, some people claim it's got to be inverted for 10 consecutive days. And I always ask the question, why 10? What's the rationale right. behind that? Well, because you do have false positives. Right. The other interesting thing that starts to happen, and I'd be curious to get your perspective on it, is Normally, the yield curve inverts at a point when people are actually really bullish. It doesn't invert mm-hmm. when the data is bad. And so there's generally this tendency for people to dismiss or discount the value of the yield curve, right? Because everyone knows it's a really good indicator, but it tends to invert when times are really good. So that said, what in addition to the yield curve would you be looking for to say, okay, right. now is the time we need to be under Ex- the desk? Exactly. And look, for us, it's, it's basically three general characteristics. Number one... Are, are we entering a profits recession? Now, we think that profits are going to slow down. Profits growth is going to slow pretty dramatically this year into next. But we're not right now looking for a profits recession. Profit recession meaning negative earnings growth out mm-hmm. of the S&P. That's not really happening right now. Number two, be an inverted curve, mm-hmm. right? Inverter, inverted curve starts telling you that the credit cycle is shutting down. Mm-hmm. And credit is, you know, many people would argue that credit is the lifeblood of the economy. And when that process starts shutting down, you slowly but surely start shutting down the, the economy. That's not happening mm-hmm. right now either. And number three, you want to see people as bullish as all get out. Mm-hmm. And as you just pointed out, you know, people are getting more bullish, of course, but they're not euphoric. But I think if you get those three, then you want to be very, very cautious. But it's also important to point out that you know you do have instances of profits recessions without economic recessions. Mm-hmm. Since World War II, there have been 14 earnings recessions, and six of those occurred without an economic recession following. And in those instances, market performance 12 months later is actually up about 12% on average. So just to shift gears for a second, and and you mentioned the very flat yield curve, and that invites the question about monetary policy. Mm -hmm. And it seems like that's something that the Fed is absolutely going to be pushing for. And even in the last couple months, there have been conferences where you've got Clarita, who's now considering a new inflation targeting framework. And yeah, it's been talked about in the past, but it's never gone anywhere. Maybe now that they're focusing on it and trying to build a framework around it, maybe the Fed actually does change their inflation target a little bit. My guess is even Fed speak on the subject is going to send a signal to the markets that says, basically, please believe us, there is inflation coming, <laughs> please get active, go deploy capital. And if we do go over 2%, you know, we'll let it run. But I think the bigger point is this, it seems like 2019 is a year with a lot more central bank easing or a lot more central bank dovishness, right? Where 2018, you had a lot of central banks hiking. Right. 2019, it seems like the Fed is clearly neutral territory, maybe even close to easing as, as they start to end the balance sheet runoff. The ECB talked about Europe's economy going nowhere. And so how do you look at that central bank liquidity? Do you think we're going back to the easy sort of expanding balance sheets of 2011 to, to 2017? Right. Or? I think it's going to depend on where you are around the world. And, you know, my take on central banks has always been in, 
not everybody agrees with me on this one, I'll readily admit, but, but I always view central banks as being lagging indicators. They react to what's going on. And so I think what we've seen out of the Fed in the last three, four months now has been a reaction to what we saw in the fourth quarter and the mm-hmm. volatility in the markets, the slowdown in the economy, maybe related to the closing of the government, you know, all these other things that were going on. And I think they reacted to that. And I think it'll be interesting to see that if the curve starts steepening again and nominal growth comes back a little bit, if all of a sudden the Fed doesn't start changing their tune and, and, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden they're talking about, well, maybe we shouldn't be easing. And, and the whole market tenor could change quite dramatically in a pretty short period of time. But I think, you know, as you go as you go to a place like China, you know, monetary policy in China could change very dramatically mm-hmm. as we go 2019 into 2020. Uh, the Chinese economy, you know, might be the one that actually shows considerable nominal growth mm-hmm. over the next year, year and a half. And it'll be interesting to see how the Bank of China responds to that. Now, on China, uh, and maybe I'll use that to jump into positioning, you talked about you know, being a little bit more defensive here in the United States, mm-hmm. still in equities, but a little bit more defensive. How mm-hmm. are you positioned outside of the United States? What, yeah. What's the area of the market, area of the global right. equities that you like? Our uh, major position outside the United States is China. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, China is the only major economy in the world that is actively trying to stimulate their economy, both through monetary and fiscal uh, policy. Tremendous, uh, uh, very aggressive uh, stimulus packages going in. And they're the only major economy in the world that has accelerating leading economic indicators. So our position, uh, we're overweight the United States, mm-hmm. uh, but outside the U.S., we're also overweight uh, China as well. Mm-hmm. Now, Byron, uh, my partner Byron uh, and I maintain a radical asset allocation, and in that, in our long only portion of the asset allocation, our two biggest overweights are United States and emerging markets. So, I, I would largely agree with you. We're underweight Japan and and Europe as well, and I think because we're, we're seeing a lot of those same things. And you know, what I would add here on the emerging market story is that you do have, I think, a situation in 2019 where every single headwind last year. Mm basically turned into a tailwind. And that was one of the reasons for our bullishness and wanting to take up our weight in EM. Because in 2018, investors woke up to uh, Fed hikes, balance sheet reduction, strong dollar, China trade war, Turkey right. and Argentina. 2019, we wake up and you know, the Fed is not hiking. It's ending its balance sheet reduction. Uh, we're likely to have a positive resolution to China trade war. Not every country is Turkey and Argentina, and I think the dollar <laughs> stabilizes. So I'd largely agree with the EM, and I think China does lead the way. In the beginning of the year with our 10 surprises, um, we noted that we thought the Shanghai index would be up 25% in 2019. We didn't think it would happen by the end of the first quarter. <laughs> right. uh, I might um, lobby Blackstone and just let them know, hey, this one came true. Maybe I'll just take the rest of the year off, <laughs> yeah. but I'm not sure if we work that way. Uh, but you know, more broadly, among emerging markets, are there any other areas of the world that you would consider? So at RBA, we are extraordinarily profit-centric, not really GDP-centric. And so you know, some of the economies are showing light, but corporate profits in many of these places are still pretty moribund. There may be, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel in some of these, mm-hmm. but it's not to the point where we're convinced. But I think, you know, I, look, my personal opinion is the United States has been out of step with the world now for about a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And we were doing very well. Our profits were accelerating while the rest of the world was imploding. I think for 19 to 20, it could very well be the exact opposite. Mm-hmm where non-U.S. does better than U.S. Yeah, and I think you make a good point about the U.S. being out of step. One of the things that I look at is the correlation of economic data points, right? Mm. The city economic surprise indices. You find normally there's a pretty high correlation. By the mid part of last year, the correlation between U.S. and global economic data points was the lowest it had been in the history of the world. So in the third quarter, our view was that the correlations would have to snap back, and that would mean either the U.S. lifts the rest of the world up 
or the rest of the world drags the U.S. down. <laughs> we incorrectly bet that the U.S. would lift the rest of the world up. So let's hope those yeah. correlations snap back. We made that bet too. Everyone knows better. Uh, I want to just close out with a quick question on risks. What's the biggest risk right now to your investment thesis? The biggest risk, I think, is um, a very typical one in a late cycle environment, and that is that investors do hit that euphoric peak right as fundamentals really start deteriorating. And in terms of the way we're positioned in our portfolios right now, that, that bottom of the ninth inning could be very painful for us because we're going to be calming down as everybody else is going to be euphoric. Mm -hmm. And I think from our firm's perspective, that is the biggest risk that's out there right now. And I think you bring up a good point about people wanting to believe that the cycle is different, right? Because in 1999, the argument was, of course, it's different this time. We right. have technology. And I know you've written a lot about <laughs> that. In 2006, people said, of course, there's never going to be another business cycle again because we have housing and housing prices never fall. Right. Perhaps the answer today is, of course, there won't be another business cycle because of unlimited central bank liquidity. Exactly. Might be something to consider. Exactly. Well, anyway, Rich, I want to thank you very much. That was all very insightful, uh, as always, and I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for inviting me. Great. And thanks, everyone, for listening. You can find more market commentary and podcasts from Blackstone on our Insights page at www.blackstone.com uh, forward slash insights. Thank you. Neither this podcast nor any of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or instrument in or to participate in any trading strategy with any Blackstone fund or other investment vehicle. Past performance is not indicative of future results and there is no assurance that any Blackstone fund will achieve its objectives or avoid significant losses. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements. Such statements are subject to various risks and uncertainties. For information about Blackstone's business, including risks and financial information, please refer to our public filings at ir.blackstone.com.